It is a joy to be together today, and we just are the body of Christ coming together, study God's Word. And uh, so let's, uh, if you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We'll move to the next section. We've been moving slowly through this book, just uh, looking at what the Word of God says in this message of Christ to His church and it's been rich, in my opinion. It's been rich in my own life and heart. I'm just so thankful. It is a blessing that it promises to be. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you, live, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have the you have there some who hold to the teaching or hold the teaching of Balaam and who keep teaching or who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, a new name written uh, on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this precious word. It's so rich, so good, and it's so much deeper than, than we even imagine. Lord, we, we tend to just look for the surface and look for the quick uh, understanding or just a shallow understanding. But Lord, every time we dig deep, it just is richer and richer and it, and it fills our thinking more and more and it, and it fills our understanding of You in a more real way. And Lord, I, I pray that that would be so today. As we look at this passage, may we, may we just glean things. May we see things that just cause us to, that just draw us to You. That causes us to, to desire You more, to come closer to You, to live closer to You, to strengthen our faith, and to make this spiritual life that we live a, a more of a reality in our lives. I thank You for Your grace. Lord, without Your illuminating Spirit to, to help us, we would, not, we would not quite understand this. We might get the surface, but Lord, we would not get the spiritual elements here. And so we, we pray that You would help us to understand these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we have been working through... This uh, this book, like I said, and it's Christ is uh, we're in the section of Revelation that Christ is addressing his church. We saw in the past couple weeks, a couple weeks ago, 
that uh, he's addressing the church at, at Ephesus, one of the seven churches, and they had lost their first love. That was the focus that Christ um, had. Uh, and there was, that was the concern that he had for this church. They had lost their first love. And, and, and he said they needed to repent. And then he goes to the church at Smyrna. And Smyrna didn't have any major issues, many major concerns, except they were fearful. There was persecution happening there at that time. And he says, I know, I know where you live. I know the persecution that you're going through. And he encourages them. Then today we'll look at this church at Pergamum. And he says, I have a few things against you. And it becomes a little bit more serious and you, a little bit more sobering tone that's what you'll see. And they have, this church has gone beyond just losing their first love. They've begun to, to flirt with the world. They've become, uh, they begin to think like the world. Become worldly. Become worldly. You say, well, what does that mean? We kind of use that term worldly uh, quite a bit. And you say, what, is, what does that mean? And we think that it's something outside of us, something outside these four walls is, is worldliness, and we don't want to be corrupted with worldliness. I want you to understand this, and, and we need a, a little bit of an understanding of worldliness to understand this passage. So turn over to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. Just quickly, just a brief explanation of worldliness. And it, it really can be summed up with what John says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. He says, Do not love the world, nor anything in the world. So we don't, we don't love the world, or anything in the world. So what does that mean? If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. It's, it's clear, it's one of the tests that John puts us through. To, to evaluate our own life, if, to see if we are Christians or not. For all that is in the world, now he's going to kind of define or help us to understand this world, worldliness. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of the Father or the will of God, lives forever. And he helps us to understand a little bit more what it is to be worldly. And the first thing you kind of notice is it is not out there. It's inside us. It's our lust. He mentions lust a couple times. It's our desires. He says it's the, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. That's our, our base desires, our, our um, inhibitions that, that are just... Um, are grown toward the flesh, of giving into the flesh, like overeating or laziness or sexual desires, just feeding the flesh, and we tend to want to give in to that. Or, or the lust of the eye. That's kind of outside. That's what we see, and we, we, are gravitate, we gravitate toward that. That's for men, that's pornography. That's jealousy. That's covetousness. There's a, an allure there even inside us. And then there's the boastful pride of life. I want to have all that stuff and I want to look good doing it. I want to look good while I'm uh, uh, enjoying it. And it's that elevation of self. It's, it's lifting up of self. It's just a, a pride. I, I, I want the attention of everyone else. I like that. We find that worldliness is in us. We have to battle that. 
There's always that temptation. And what makes it worse is Satan is in control of this world. He is the one that controls or, or he uh, influences the thinking of this world. And he does so by lies. He introduces lies. He redefines the world around us so we don't think biblically. We don't think in light of God. We think with different priorities, different value systems. And he introduces this system of thought to the world. And, and the worldliness essentially is a system of of thought, if you will, that's that pulls us. And that's why it works so well. That's why Satan can lead us about so well, is because this base desire, these base desires that we have within us, this sinful flesh that we have, and and our flesh is enslaved to sin, it, it there's this appeal to us. It appeals to our base nature, this flesh. And so Satan is just easily just leads us along. And without thought, then we just buy into what he is selling. Now, in Romans chapter 12, Paul reminds us that we are not to be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. By what? By the renewing of our mind. We think differently than the world. Now, that's worldliness. We, we battle this inside. Now, we have to overcome that by thinking through this thing. We have to think of the Christian life in light of, of God. That God is there in God's Word. God's Word. Now, with that being said, I want us to do a couple of things. Just a quick overview of this passage. And then we'll focus on Christ's concern. And we want to spend a little bit of time with that. So back to Revelation chapter 2. And we just want to give an overview of this passage so that we can, um, we can understand this. He says, to the angel, in verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, the angel, and we've talked about that, is the messenger, probably the one who's carrying this message, the one who is going to read it, to proclaim this to the church. He says, um, he says, write this. This is Pergamum. Now, this is the city, Pergamum. It's actually modern-day Bergama, Turkey. Now, back in the day that John was writing, it was the capital city of Asia, or that providence of Asia. It had been so, the capital city, for 250 years. It was a prominent city. It was a city with distinction. It was about 100 miles north of Ephesus. It wasn't, uh, wasn't a great city or a big city or anything like that. But it was a city with distinction. It was kind of out of the way. But it was an important city. They said it was an impressive city, a royal city. It's set up on this mountain, this thousand foot mountain. It kind of stood out. It looked royal. Another thing that distinguished the city was it was the second head, the second largest library of the ancient world. 200,000 volumes of what we would say books today. It was only the second largest because Alexandria in northern Africa was the largest, had the largest library. And they were defenders of the Greek culture, the Greco-Roman culture of that day. They were fanatics. They were fanatical for, for Rome. They were the first ones to build a temple for Roman worship or for emperor worship, to worship Caesar, to worship the, the emperors. And they did that uh, during Christ's lifetime, actually. And as bad as the city of Ephesus was, and as bad as the city of Smyrna was, as hard as it would have been to live in that city, Pergamum was worse. 
It was the most pagan of cities. In fact, Christ said, if you look down at verse 13, he says, um, you dwell among the thrones or Satan's throne. He called it Satan's throne, this city. Now, some of the theologians said, well, that's talking about Zeus because they had a temple to Zeus there and uh, had a huge throne. Some said, no, no, that's uh, it's talking about the the um, the saving God, the healing God that was worshipped there. There was several gods that were worshipped there. Some would say, no, this throne of Satan is talking about this satanic oppression that you kind of feel this heavy atmosphere, maybe a spirit of persecution toward the Christian. But it's probably related, this throne of Satan, probably related to emperor worship because that was the epitome of this city. They worshipped they worshipped the, the emperor, the, any emperor at the time. But it was really more than that. It was not just the emperor. It was, it was almost a worship of Rome and the Roman culture. Now, we can understand that. Um, you, you can, we love America. You can take loving America a little too far. Um, but we still love America. We still love America. We recognize America has problems, but we still love America. They would not recognize that there was any problems. And there would be worship here. This was worship. And there's a distinction. There's a distinction. And one of the commentators said this. Help us understand this a little bit better. Um, He said, Caesar worship was the most intense here in Pergamum. And he said, in other cities, the Christian might be in danger only one day of year when they had to take pinch incense, a pinch of incense, and burn it to worship the emperor. But he says in Pergamum, however, the Christians were in danger every day of the year. He says for the same reason, because they worshiped the emperor every day of the year. They were fanatical toward Rome, Greek culture, all of the Roman gods. There were so many temples there, the Greek gods. And it was very heavily involved in worshiping the emperor and, and Rome. So it was a royal city. They did everything by the book according to, according to that Greco-Roman culture. A city of distinction. Probably an educated city with all of the volumes there. But Satan had planted lies. And they were living a lie. They were not living to the glory of God. They were idol worshipers. They were idolatrous. They were an idolatrous people. Satan had a stronghold here. Now we look at that city and we just, we just laugh how silly they are. You know, to, to bow down and, and worship this emperor. I mean, he's just a man. Or to, to burn incense to this emperor. To light a candle. To, to worship these people or to worship this in any way. But you know what? Idols is not just something outwardly, is it? It's not just something that, that we see. Idol is anything that, anything that we love more than God. Anything that we serve, routinely serve more than God. Now think about the, think about your life. Think about, I think about my own life. What I routinely serve other than God? What do I fear other than God? What am I willing to sacrifice for other than, other than God or beyond God? Anything that takes precedent over God can be an idol in my own life. 
that's where they were. Now, we would think, oh, that's just money. Where You know, people worship money. We could say, oh, yeah, they're just, their whole life is consumed by money and the possessions. But really, when it comes down to it, what do we worship the most? It's not so much the money. It's my own self. It's my own pleasure. I'm the one on the throne in my own life. People are there to serve me. My money is there for me. The possessions that I have are for me. We, we are pretty much worshiping ourselves in our day. And it's not much different. We, we look at Pergamon. We can laugh at that city. We think, oh, how silly. But I tell you what, Beckley, Daniels, is filled with idol, idol worshipers. They're not worshiping the true and living God. And Satan is just as much at work here in Daniels, here in Beckley, here in West Virginia, than he was in the city of Pergamon. We just see it a little bit different. But we need to change our thinking. Now let's look at the writer. You see number two there. Let's look at the writer, chapter uh, verse 12 there. He says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now, he's referring back to the vision in chapter 1. Remember, he sees has this vision of Christ, and Christ has this sword coming out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. There's no blunt edges to this sword. It, it will cut either way. And that's the word, his word that comes out of his mouth. And the author of Hebrews reminds us, that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it, and it pierces, it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's how sharp the Word of God is. That it can precisely cut through and say, you know what, you did this right, but you know you did this for the wrong motives. And it could just slice us open and expose, expose Wrong motives in our own heart. The Word of God is sharp. And Christ has it. And He's kind of standing in judgment over His church with this sword. He is the judge and the executor. And this is, this is a threatening image to the church. This church is facing judgment. Imminent judgment. Christ is there. And He's evaluating His church based upon His Word Based upon his word. Now, the implication is, is this church cannot just do anything they want to do. They are Christ's church. Christ planted this church. It is his church. He stands over this church and he will judge this church. He will discipline this church as he sees fit. Folks, we need to take that into consideration, don't we? Christ is the one who evaluates his church, Christ will discipline his church. Something to keep in mind for us. Number three, let's look at the encouragement. Now, Christ is, is getting ready to judge, but he, he points out some things they have right, some things they've done well. Look at verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell. He says, I understand. This is the throne of Satan himself. Satan himself lives there. And I understand, he says, that you've held fast, that you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the day of Antipas. Antipas was, was killed. Antipas was killed there in that city. Um, Antipas, they say, the tradition says that he was roasted to death. He was put in a fire in a, uh, it was a 
a bronze bull. And he was put in this bull and he was, he was roasted. That's what the tradition says. And they hung in there. They hung in there. The word dwell, they said to dwell, and he actually mentions it twice at the end of one, at the end of verse 13. He says you dwell there. And the word dwell has the implications of hanging on. They're, they're hanging on. It'd be easier for them just to move, but they're still there. They're still there. And they're holding fast to the name of Christ. They did not deny. Even when people were uh, being killed around them, they were, they're loyal to Christ. And Christ commends them for that. And it reminds me of what Christ said. Remember when He was talking to Peter, He said, Upon this uh, rock I will build my church, this foundation. And that was the, that was Christ, uh, that was the, the claim of His deity Himself. And He said, I will build my church. And He says, The gates of hell will not prevail against it. These people were right there. Where, where Satan would have attacked them. Satan was just prolific in his attack to them. And they would not cave. They did not bow the knee. MacArthur goes on to say about this verse, he says, No amount of satanic opposition can destroy genuine saving faith such as these people have. Even right there in the throne of Satan, right there in the midst where Satan's activities were, were prevalent, they had a... Christ had a strong church. And this church remained faithful to Christ. It remained faithful to the truth. And they were not afraid. They were willing to die. And you say, why would, church, why would Christ have a church right there? Right there. He says, Antipas, my witness. My witness, my faithful one. He wants someone to be right there in the midst of satanic activity to be a witness, to be a conscience to these people. To convict them that they know what they do is wrong. That this church didn't cave. They, they overcame. They were faithful. They did not bow. They did not compromise. They, they hung on. They were faithful. They were faithful to Christ. Let's look at the concern. You see number four on the screen. Uh, the concern, worldliness. We're going to come back and look at that. The consequences is war. We'll look at that. Skip down to verse 17. I just want us to, to quickly look at this and then we'll look at the focus. Here's the advice Christ gives to this church. And I love this. This is so good. Verse 17. He says this. He who has ears, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. Just, just listen up. Christians, listen up, he says. Listen up. To him who overcomes, that's what they need to do. Just continue. Overcome. Continue. Overcome. He says, I will give you some hidden manna. That's a wonderful thought. Manna was that bread, remember, that came down from heaven during the Old Testament time with the children of Israel. Christ made sure they were fed it really is kind of an image of Christ for us. That Christ is our manna. Christ is our... In fact, Christ said Himself, He says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. We, we will receive that. Next, He says, I will give you a white stone. You say, what's that about? When the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, they, um, if the athlete would win a particular event, they would get a white stone. And that particular, that white stone would allow them to get into the athletic banquet, you might say. 
the, the place where they're celebrating. And uh, without that white stone, you would not be able to get in. And it, it really kind of is just, I give you this pass into, into heaven, into my glory. But now look, look at this, verse, the end of verse 17, he says, And a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who, ha- who receives it. We receive this white stone. That's probably figuratively speaking. But there's a particular name no one else knows. What is he talking about? He's talking about intimacy. Talking about intimacy of a family. We're born into God's family. And we, someday we will have, we will be ushered into the very presence of God because of Christ. And there will be an intimacy that, that He knows us intimately. He knows us by name. That's a wonderful thing. Just keep going. Overcome because this is yours. This is yours if you continue. This eternal glorified state with, with the family of God is yours if you continue to overcome. And they had to overcome. Folks, the same, the same advice would be given to us today, wouldn't it? Overcome. Keep going. America, we see a decline in America, right? We see that decline. What would Christ say? Just overcome. Don't get swept in. Don't, don't lose hope. Continue in your faith. Endure. Do not bow the knee. Overcome. And as America gets worse, as we see this, we need to be reminded to hang on. Hang on. Hold on. Like these, these poor saints in this city of Pergamum. Now, as good as this church sounds, there's a problem. Now, let's focus upon this problem in verse 14. He says, but, but, there's a contrast. There's a contrast here. There's a, there's a double life being led here. There's some inconsistencies here. You're saying one thing and, and doing another thing. I have some problems with what you're doing. You're not, you're not quite up to par where you should be. There's a problem, he says. I have a few things against you because you have some there. You have there some. Not all the church. Not everyone in the church, but but some. Some people there are holding to these things. And he says this, he says, because some are there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Holding to the teaching of Balaam. What's that? Well, it's an Old Testament character. He was a, a prophet. He, he tells us a little bit about this. Let me just read. He says, who kept teaching Balak. And now Balak, remember, Balak was the king of the Amorites. Balak was in Moab and, and he hated Israel. And he hires Balaam, who is supposed to be a prophet of God. He hires Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel. So this king, Balak, wants to curse Israel so he could just take over Israel, Right? So he wants Balaam to present this curse or, or to pronounce this curse on Israel. So he calls Balaam up. And you know the story. Numbers chapter 22, it starts and goes all the way for two or three chapters. It's hilarious. Balaam, he goes along, he's riding his donkey, he goes through this narrow pass, and there's this angel, remember the story? This angel blocks his path and he beats his donkey, go ahead, go ahead. He can't see the angel, but the donkey can. Was The donkey turns around and talks to him and says, why are you doing this to me? Just hilarious. It's it's almost comedic. But Balaam gets up to 
the high point. He's overlooking Israel. He's getting ready to pronounce this curse upon Israel. He opens his mouth and he blesses Israel. And it happens three times. Three times he blesses Israel. Does just the opposite that the king wants him to do. And you know, what, what in the world is going on? God is making him look like a fool. He looks ridiculous. So Balaam, he says, I know how to get Israel. You want to get Israel? You want your money's worth? I'll show you how to get Israel. Let's introduce some immorality. That's what happens. He said he kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols. They get them into worship. That's the idea. If, we worship, if they worship other gods, then God will pronounce a curse on them himself. God will attack them himself. And, and he says, committing acts of idolatry and committing acts of immorality. And probably the immorality came first. And he lured them. And that's exactly what happened. They presented, you know, King of Balak. He kind of introduces all these women. And God put a plague on Israel because of this. Because these men, because many men in Israel fell to this teaching, fell to this trap. You can't, can't beat them the front way. You can't attack them front way. Let's go around the back way. And they fell for this. And God wound up killing 24,000 Israelites lost their life because of this. Because of this foolish. Because of this, this sneaky attack by Balaam. And what's the teaching of Balaam? The teaching of Balaam essentially is compromise. You can't attack them from the front. Let's go around the back door. Let's sneak in. Let's just subtly do it. The back door. Not only that. So you have the teaching of Balaam. Look at verse 15. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What are the Nicolaitans? The Nicolaitans, tradition says, we don't know a whole lot, but tradition says that uh, this teaching of the Nicolaitans came from Nicholas. And if you look up Nicholas in in Acts chapter 6, they say Nicholas was one of those early disciples. Remember the the elders said, uh, we're being too taxed here, we need some help. So they brought in some help in Acts chapter 6. One of those men, the seven men that they voted in to do this, was named Nicholas. Well, Nicholas, they say, and this is again tradition, he puts together a well-defined, thought-out philosophy of essentially pleasing self, of making self happy. And he somehow combined theology in an accurate understanding of God and of Christ, but also immorality and justifying justifyingly so. And he was, he was pretty smart. He had this philosophy and he began to teach this. How to make myself happy. I can be a Christian and be happy too. And, and the two come together. And I can serve myself and serve God. And So you have the philosophy of the Nicolaitans. This, this combination. But there's another problem with Israel that's kind of unspoken here. And, and it was the sum that was the problem, right? There was some there that held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, some that held to the teaching of, of Balaam. But the rest of the church allowed that to happen. They were not confronted. This teaching was allowed to stay in the church. And it was a problem. The church did not do excommunication or church discipline. They tolerated this sinful teaching in the church. And, 
And that was a problem. And Christ said, actually, he said in the previous session, if you remember last week or two weeks ago, he said, you hate the Nicolaitans like I hate them. Christ hated the Nicolaitans. Why? Because they were teaching ways to justify immorality, justify our sinfulness. Now, therein lies the problem. Therein lies the problem. They had a right theology. They could sign off on the right doctrinal statement. But when it came down to Christian living, oh, that's up to us. And they kind of justified their, their, their sinful lifestyle. And man is good at that. We're all good at that. We can rationalize about everything. We can, we can justify about any action. People do what they want to do. They just rationalize. They get their mind convinced that this is the right thing to do. <clears throat> now the thing is, is that the world has this kind of philosophy. They rationalize what they do. They rationalize what they want to do. And it's just world. It's a worldly philosophy. It's a worldly philosophy that had distorted their view of holiness. Now, they could hold to God, hold to the right theology, but just their holiness was in question. It distorted their self-restraint. It distorted their purity, their holiness. And they began to slip into immorality. Now listen, that was the same thing that happened with Israel with Balak. Let's just slip in a little bit of immorality. Let's just slip in some teaching. Well, God is gracious. You can do whatever you want to. God is gracious. He's a gracious God, right? Yeah. He's a gracious... Oh, yeah. Then we just begin to, begin to think like that. And it's a way of thinking. It's a way of justifying. It's a way of compromising First of all, the flesh. And then it, and it just leads to idolatry. Is essentially what it is. Now, I remember back, we were talking about this the other night. I remember back uh, when one of the contemporary artists, and I don't remember who it was. Um, there were several, uh, you know, Sandy Patty or Amy Grant uh, back in the 80s, 90s, some point back there. I kind of lose track of time. But one of those points, this lady justified her divorce. I didn't want to say the name, but it was essentially Sandy Patty is what I was thinking. Sandy Patty said, uh, she said, well, well, God would want me to be happy, wouldn't he? And, and the, the whole of Christianity back at the time just gasped. What kind of thinking? That was a new way of thinking. It was a new way of thinking. We hadn't thought, God wants us to be happy? Wait a second. We have to, we have to, had to change our, our, our way of thinking about that. There's a new way of thinking. And today, well, it doesn't even, doesn't even, we don't even bat an eye. Well, yeah, of course God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be rich. This prosperity gospel. He, he wants the, the best for you, right? He allows His church to suffer. I mean, this is just one example right here. He allows His church to suffer. He allows things that, talk, what Tim taught us today. He wants His will to be done. The goal of our life is not for my own happiness, for my own pleasure. The goal of my life is to please God in whatever He wants me, He wants for me. It's not my own pleasure. And it should shock us to, to hear Christians in their thinking justifying their own sinfulness by saying, oh, well, God wants my happiness. But there's a whole philosophy behind that, isn't there? It's a whole way of thinking so what do we do? Let's go back to what we said earlier. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Christians renew our mind. We have a different way of thinking 
about life. Different way of viewing the world, viewing things. Now let me try to, let me try to illustrate this. These are just, I'm sure these are bad illustrations. The other day, or this week, I saw a little video clip on Facebook. And, um, it seems to be where I get all of my illustrations. It isn't just Facebook. But in this video clip, you have these two little cub bears and this mama bear, and they're playing in the water. They're playing in this lake, you know? And it was at, on the beach. And there were people around, people in the boats, people just on one side, the other side. There were people all around, and these bears are just playing there. And the video camera was on these bears, and they were saying, oh, how cute, oh, how cuddly. They give each other hugs, and, you know, and the mommy's just taking good care, and all this. And it just, and it kind of appeals to you. You just want to give up, oh, come on, little bear, I want to give you a little hug. Now, that's our, that's our cuddly flesh kind of thing, right? But our mind kicks in. Now, nobody was doing that in the video. Their mind kicks in and say, no, you know, that's an animal. That's a wild animal. Wild animals are unpredictable. They're, uh, they're not, uh, they're not, uh, uh, they have teeth. They have claws. They're much stronger than you think they are. And our mind kicks in and says, no, danger. Don't go rushing up and hugging these bears. They're not little teddy bears, right? Our emotions kind of kick in, our, and, and our, our flesh kind of kicks in, and our mind kind of takes a whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. When we were at, uh, this is another illustration, but when we were, uh, uh, when we pulled into uh, Yellowstone National Park, our kids have just been in the car all day, and uh, we, we just opened the door. And we saw these rocks kind of all over the place. We thought they were rocks. And the kids were rushing up. And they almost were going to jump on these rocks, climb on these rocks, you know. And we looked closely. And those rocks were, were uh, biasing. Those rocks were huge uh, animals. And, and so we hear somebody, of course, we are the perfect parents, obviously. And somebody else is saying, little kid, don't go running toward the buffalo. Buffalo. Yeah, so. So there's, a, there's danger there. Kids don't see that danger. We don't see that danger sometimes. Here's another illustration. You're getting ready to eat one of those big hamburgers. Now, the big hamburgers that you see on the commercials, they're different than real life. That's, you understand that. You see them on the commercials. They're the ones that are on the commercials. You're getting ready to bite into that thing. And you hear on the radio, it says, uh, oh, by the way, if you've eaten, uh, if you uh, have uh Bought a hamburger at this particular place at this particular time. Don't eat it because it has salmonella. It has poison on it. What do you do? You say, oh, I want that burger. My flesh is appealed. I love this burger. This is so good. This is so perfect. I'm going to bite into it. And you hear that information and your mind takes over. and Whoa, you put that burger down. You step away from that thing. I don't want to touch that thing. That's poison. I will die. That's information in our mind. It's information that we need to know. And that informs our our decision. Folks, we need to see the world the same way. We need to see sin and say, whoa, whoa, no, I don't even want to flirt with that stuff. And my flesh, my flesh wants that. But my mind takes over. It's been informed. It's been renewed by the Word of God. And my mind takes over and says, danger, danger, danger. So we don't even flirt with it. There's an appeal, definitely. But we don't flirt with it. And that was what was happening. Flirting with the world. 
kind of justifying their behavior. Oh, it's okay. God is gracious. He is a good God. He is a loving God. And justifying behavior. That's, that's the sin. That's the crux of the matter. That's the concern. And Christ said, I have this against you. Your theology is great. Your thinking is great. You're, you're willing to die for me. But you're flirting with the world. There's a danger here. And look at the consequences. And we'll just wrap this up very quickly. The consequences is repent. You better repent or else I will come. In verse 16, he says, therefore repent or else. That's not fun. When my mom said or else, it was never good. Or else I will, I am coming to you quickly and I will make war. That is a strong, that's strong language. You'll make war against your own church, Christ? Yeah. I will discipline my church. Now he changes there. He says, I will come to you and I will make war against them. There's actually, they're actually one and the same. The church was allowing the, the teaching to go on. So the church was essentially guilty as well. And he said, I will make war with you and with them. There's going to be punishment dished out. And it's going to be with the word. I'm going to use my word and it's going to cut through your heart. And you're going to be exposed for what you are. Your motives are impure. And that's what's going to go on. The consequences is not good for them. It's war. War against Christ. And the standard is His Word. That's what we're held to, right? We, we are to hold to the standard of His Word. We are accountable to that standard. Now, here's what we tend to do. We love the theology of this book. But the commands of this book, the morals of this book, well, look, we can kind of justify those. As long as our theology's right, oh boy, we can kind of live, you know. Well, new Christians come in, they don't know. There's baby Christians. So we just begin to justify things. And we begin to uh, justify things in our own mind, but we're still held to that standard of God's Word. There's so many commands in Scripture. There's examples in Scripture of the way the Christian is to live the Christian life. And we're responsible for what God has said. And the implications here, listen, if we are not for God, we are what? We're against God. And He's going to come and He's going to war against us. Against us. Folks, we live in a generation, kind of a second generation Christendom, if you want to call it that, that knows how to justify sin. That knows very well how to rationalize. And and it's easy for us to just get into this Christendom, this worldly way of thinking that... that holds to a certain theology, but, boy, their lives are not what it should be. Well, the church at Pergamum held to a sound theology, but they were flirting with the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Father, I thank You for Your Word, for the danger signs that we see, for, for the correction that it makes in our thinking. Because it shows us the way things really are. And, and you're, just, you're just pointing these things out for our good, for your glory and for our good. And Lord, we thank you for that. It is a good thing that, that you would reprimand us. It's a good thing to, to fall under your judgment. And to be 
told to repent or else. We thank you for that lovingly fatherly advice, that loving, that fatherly hand that you have on your church. Lord, may we take heed. Lord, may we overcome. May we overcome. Help us to not bow the knee. But Lord, help us to please you with our lives as well as with our theology, but with our lives particularly. Help us to not get down that slippery slope into idolatry. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. If we can help you, we would love to be able to do that. Um, I'm available really throughout the week, and our elders are so good about doing that as well. If we can help you, uh, please look us up. Please talk to us. Pray with you. Uh, obviously, if you, these are new things to you. If, you, if this is something that that you need help with, you you have not really even thought about, and Christ is not a part of your life. That's the first stop. That's the first place to start. Um, and for the rest of us, let's be careful with my own life as well. Let's be careful about that slippery slope of uh, justifying our behavior. Father, we thank You that You are a gracious God, but Lord, You are a God who judges, a God who is firm with His church. Lord, we thank You for both attributes. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.